Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And we are ecstatic to be kicking off Pride Month with uh, an incredible author that I think many of you will recognize more so by their work than who they actually are. Um, But this week, we are actually going to be profiling the author of Frog and Toad, uh, Arnold Lobel. And so I am uh, very familiar with the Frog and Toad series and several different sorts of spinoffs. So it was really fun to learn about Arnold Lobel um, and all of the other works that he did, all of which really fall in the children's literature realm. Um, But also learning, and I guess what was surprising to me more, um, that he was an illustrator and really associated himself with art and illustration more than an author. So I think this will be kind of a cool episode to explore uh, what it means to construct pieces of literature through art and language. We've had the chance to profile a couple of people who have um, incredible skills aside from being an author in general. The one that comes to me most readily is like Julia Child or Stephen Sondheim, where both cooking and then music writing was the thing that they paired with with literature. So I think it's exciting that we get to delve into an illustrator as well, Stephanie. I agree. And um, there are some fantastic sites that have collected a series of these illustrations and put them up together. Uh, and so definitely, I think, worth a look, even if you kind of feel like you know the frog and toad vibe. Um, it's cool to see how the style shifts and changes depending on the actual work itself. Um, But before we get into Arnold Lobel and his life, uh, what do you have? What news, notes, and updates uh, do we need to know about this week, John? I have two updates for you, Stephanie. And the first one seems to be uh, a case of friendly fire. And it is the fact that the Bible has been banned from a Utah school district for vulgarity and violence in revenge for conservative attacks on literature. I don't want you to think I'm editorializing. That is the title (laughs) of the piece posted on AOL. Uh, It was just such a spin on the story that I I had to read it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So just a little bit of background. As we've discussed multiple times on the podcast, uh, one of the things that's been going around the country are book bans and... um, one of the book bands stated that vulgarity and violence would result in the banning of a book, regardless of what context the vulgarity and the violence were in. So there were a lot of books that were ruled out based on this set of criteria, including The Bluest Eye and a graphic novel called Gender Queer. So some people said that the Bible had these themes, which there are are elements of that in the Bible, but obviously in context, it's a religious text that means a lot to very many people. But by being uh, maliciously compliant, I think the the Bible was, was ruled to be taken out of elementary and middle schools while it maintains its ability to be staying in the high school libraries in this school district in Utah, at least. So I thought that that was an interesting case of unintended consequences. Uh, very much so. And uh, it does meet the criteria. If we're taking a look at the, you know, the rubric for what needs to be banned, it definitely falls into that category. I think in a lot of different stories, depending on how you're reading it. And, um, you know, I guess equal opportunity under the law. That's right. 
I think the person who reported or brought the Bible to the attention of the committee is firmly in the camp of doing away with the book bans in general, rather than a true interest in banning the Bible itself. So I think that it's more of a protest against the book ban than it is anything else. So I think that's the way at least I'm reading this activity. Sure. You know, if you want to ban books for your kids, you can do that in your own household, but you don't have the right to ban books for other people. And um, I don't know that I, I have a shifted perspective on that. So I hope indeed that, that um, those families that find certain books not appropriate for their kids can have that conversation with their own children in their own homes, um, but certainly not take away opportunities from other people. So um, be careful of your book bans, folks. Yeah, just don't ban the books. Uh, and in other news, I found a piece that is at the intersection of two things I care about, Stephanie, which is math and language. So I'm looking at a piece called Punctuation in Literature of Major Languages is Intragruly Mathematical. So don't let the title fool you. It's not so steeped in Minutia. It's a study of punctuation in seven different Western languages, including English, German, French, Italian, Spanish, Polish, and Russian. They looked at 240 popular literary works, and they were looking at the amount of words in between punctuations to see if punctuation is something that is distributed differently in different languages or if all languages sort of share a similar distribution of punctuation. It turns out that all the punctuation in the languages studied follows a similar distribution. We're all familiar with the bell curve. That's one type of distribution called the normal distribution. But it turns out that punctuation follows the Weibull distribution, which is like... That's my favorite one. <laughs> I'm glad, Stephanie. The Weibull <laughs> distribution is if the bell curve sort of got squished to the left. So it has a larger mean towards the smaller number of words in between punctuations and then gradually reaches uh, zero as you go further to the right because we can't have a run-on sentence that has no punctuation unless you're reading something like Finnegan's Wake. I thought this was really interesting that all of the languages studied had the same distribution, and they were also looking at translations of literature to see if the translations of the same piece followed the same distribution of punctuation. And it turns out that many of these pieces did, and especially German for some reason, because they said that the German language has stolen so many punctuation rules from all of the other languages profiled, that the translations from German into the other languages were most similar to the original German, which I thought was very cool. Last but not least, I thought it was interesting that English, among all the languages, has the most infrequent punctuation, meaning the most words in between punctuations. So well, I guess... considering that many of my um, creative writing students just chose not to put any punctuation at all in their pieces, I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, luckily, that's not what skewed the distribution, Stephanie, because <laughs> it was only famous works of literature. Um 
But anyhow, I thought it was a very interesting article. I'm not used to seeing a quantitative analysis of anything in literature. And I think zeroing in on the punctuations, while not a full picture of what's going on, at least has a window into the fact that these seven major languages have a similar way to make syntax. So I thought that was interesting. And I also think it, it would be sort of interesting to see what that data looks like across um, time periods as well, because I know the way that we choose to use punctuation has also been manipulated over time. So I'd be sort of curious to then maybe even go and drill down further and take a look at, you know, the distribution, what it might look like for something written, you know, from 1300 to 1600, and then 1600 to 1900, and then, you know, 1900 to, to present day, because I think that would also look very very different um, and be very interesting to sort of understand how uh, our, as an English, uh, grasp of punctuation has shifted. You've brought up an excellent point, Stephanie, and this study did not control for time. So we're looking at Dickens and, and more contemporary authors all in the same go. So um, I think that putting Orwell, Goethe, and uh, Dumas together you know, is is a funny thing to look at punctuation as if it's a monolith. And I'll also look at some of the Eastern languages, like Chinese, that didn't have any type of traditional punctuation up until this 19th century. So I think that it's a little far to call it a universal need for languages to have this kind of distribution of punctuation, but it is interesting that these seven studied seem to follow the same distribution. Very interesting. Uh, well, I'm glad that someone has taken an interest in punctuation and math in context, uh, and that you were able to enjoy the fusion of those two things that you find interesting um, and bringing it to us. So thank you very much for the uh, news report and update about our punctuation. Absolutely, Stephanie. And now let's go ahead and take it away to Arnold Lobel. Um, we also just wanted to shout out if you haven't had a chance to take a look at this already. Um, but we had a listener create um, a beautiful portrait of Arnold Lobel. And uh, we shared that on our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So if you go take a look at our social media feeds, you can uh, look at this beautiful portrait that I think is a wonderful tribute uh, to Arnold Lobel and also a really lovely nod to his style of art. So um, please go take a look at it. Thank you so much, Isaac, for your beautiful creation. Um, it was wonderful to see and, and so exciting uh, to be able to work across mediums with you as well. Um, obviously, John and I very much work in in the audio realm in producing this podcast, but it was really fun to see an artistic interpretation of the work that we love so much. And if there is an author to have rendered in a style, it's one who identifies as an illustrator, right? So I think this is a very fitting tribute. So again, thank you, Isaac. Uh, if you're interested in seeing more of Isaac, you can also check out his Instagram at Isaac PR. So again, thanks, Isaac. And now let's go ahead and take it away, uh, learning a little bit more about Arnold Lobel, Frog, and Toad. Arnold Stark Lobel was born on May 22nd, 1933 in Los Angeles um, to Lucille Stark and Joseph Lobel. So I thought Stark was a pretty uh, interesting middle name. And then I was like, oh, it's literally his mom's maiden name. So, um, but I think kind of a cool name in general. I also think it says something that the mom wanted her last name to live on as a middle name. So good for her. Yeah. 
Um, don't worry, his parents uh, will fall out of the picture pretty quickly. So <laughs> that might be the most exciting thing we hear about them and one no. of the only things. But um, May 22nd makes Arnold Lobel a Gemini. And according to FamousBirthdays.com, he is the seventh most popular May 22nd author, um, none of which I recognized except for number one, who was Arthur Conan Doyle. So I thought that was kind of cool. Very different uh, in the literary world. I don't know that I would put them together, but kind of a fun I guess match. their characters sort of dress the same way, right? Yeah, maybe like tweed. It's it's giving tweed. <laughs> it's giving me vests. I'm getting little like newsboy caps, that sort of thing. Um, maybe he took inspiration from the other author born on his birthday or something. Yes. I don't know. Um, he's also the 12th most popular person with the first name Arnold. Um, I'm guessing many of these would <laughs> will sound familiar to a lot of you because there are not a lot of Arnolds around. Um, but the first one was Arnold Schwarzenegger, the mm-hmm. actor turned politician. Um, Arnold Palmer, the golfer. And then the namesake for the beverage uh, <laughs> came in uh, up at the top as well. And um, John, I pulled for you um, Arnold Schoenberg, the composer. That's right. Who wrote music or something? He definitely did. I'm not very familiar with his canon, but uh, definitely a prominent composer. So Arnold grows up in Schenectady, New York. And that is his parents' hometown, actually, which is why he winds up there, because his parents decide that they're going to get divorced and they arrange for his uh, grandparents to raise him, actually. I'm not sure like which pair of of grandparents it was, Um, but he winds up getting raised by those grandparents instead. Thank goodness the grandparents were in a place to take him in. I think uh, it's not all families have that ability uh, so I, I think he's very lucky to have had grandparents that were able to to raise him. Right. Um, and he, uh, his childhood seems like it was kind of mixed. It seems like he had a lovely relationship with these grandparents. Um, he recalls that they were very happy. He didn't necessarily grow up with any pets, but I thought this story was kind of funny. He did try to save a live lobster that he found in the refrigerator. Um, it did not it did not work, and he did not have the lobster as a pet, but I thought that that was kind of whimsical and fun. It is. And also sad. Yeah. <laughs> Kindergarten through second grade, when he starts school, then things start to get a little rough. Uh, he apparently was kind of sick on and off growing up as a child um, and pretty small for his age, so he got bullied a lot at school. Um, he made up, though, for what his um, what he was being made fun of physically with the stories that he could invent. So it sounds like even from an early age, he uh, considered himself a storyteller. Um, and then in a different interview, he describes himself as, quote, a sad child who often took refuge in the local library, end quote. Um, and so there's something really beautiful about a library being a safe haven, uh, but sort of sad that it needed to be a haven to begin with. Uh, but he really enjoyed picture books. And um, his memory of picture books I also found very nice, so I thought I would read the quote that came from there, too. Um, And he finds them apparently, quote, capable of suggesting everything that is good about feeling well and having positive thoughts about being alive, end quote. Um, And there was just 
something, I think, that does sort of capture that. I don't know that I've ever read a children's picture book and not sort of smiled my way through it. Um, there's something really special and magical about picture books that I I love. And I think the the marriage of storytelling and, and imagery and art uh, is really beautiful. And so it seems like that was also a safe refuge um, for a young Arnold Lobel as well. I'm glad he found the refuge there. And I think it's interesting that we allow the frame for a children's book to not be grounded in realism. And I think that there's this sense of wonderment that you frame a story around that's refreshing and earnest in a children's book that you don't get in other places in your life. So I can absolutely see why he was so enchanted by these, especially if he was sad. Right. And so much so that those will become his life's work as well. So obviously something that had a big impact on him. Um, and it did have a big enough impact on him that he wound up going to the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn to get his degree in fine arts. Um, so he studied the fine arts. He continued to make illustration part of his work. And he graduates from Pratt Institute in 1955. Uh, he also marries a fellow student who graduated with him, um, Anita Kempler. She is also an illustrator and does a lot of fine art as well. Um, they will collaborate on lots of different books throughout the course of their lives, including How Brewster Saved the Day in 1977, A Tree Full of Pigs in 1979, and The Rose in My Garden in 1984. And so I, I would love to take a look at those books together and, and sort of see what came out of that. But um, they also have two children together, um, Adrian and Adam. Uh, and Adrian does a lot of interviews kind of talking about her father's legacy. And so a lot of the work that I was able to find uh, comes directly from her and, and the work that she's done to sort of preserve his legacy, which I thought was very touching. I think there's also something beautiful in a husband and wife team writing a couple of books. Um, and the fact that one of their children was so inspired that she would carry her father's legacy and uh, be a, a mouthpiece to discuss his work. I think that that is such a large mark of success for him. So I have really good feelings on where we're going to go with this author's life, Stephanie. Great. Well, I know that there'll be a lot of lovely stories along the way. So I hope that those um, help to paint your narrative. So he begins his career doing uh, different work for advertising agencies, uh, but doesn't necessarily find that very fulfilling. So he starts to illustrate then for Harper and Rowe, the publishers in 1961. And then he illustrates his very first book called Red Tag Comes Back, which is a story about a salmon. Um, so, you know, that's a good start, I suppose. I I I think it is. I think he's obviously attracted to creatures that spend at least a portion of their time in the water. You're right. And uh, lots of his work will be based in anthropomorphizing various animals. Um, and it sounds like it started with a salmon instead of like a frog or a toad. But um, uh, January 21st, 1963, he publishes another book called A Holiday for Mr. Muster. And um, this was likely inspired by the Prospect Park Zoo where they lived. It was right across the street about. Um, so he was able to wander down, I'm guessing, with his young children to see the zoo and see all the animals and things like that. Um, and so this book is actually, it sounds very sweet. I was reading a summary of it. It's about a man who becomes a zookeeper so that he can um, spend all of the days that he can with his animal friends. So I thought that was very sweet. So it's like your dream job? 
yeah, who knows? Maybe that is my next career. I'm just going to become a zookeeper. <laughs> um, although I think I think I'd rather just have a farm. I think I'd mm. rather just sort of have a farm with the the sorts of animals and creatures that I would like to have. I don't know that I would do very well. Like, I don't know that I could handle like an elephant. That seems very difficult. <laughs> um, so speaking of influences, uh, Arnold Lovell's included various TV shows that he watched, which I thought was kind of cool, um, including Bewitched and The Carol Burnett Show. Um, so those were, I think, very great uh, popular influences. But he also really enjoyed the comedy routines of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, uh, along with Fred Astaire and Edward Everett Horton. So he's getting all of these, you know, classic influences, but uh, very witty humor, which makes its way into a lot of the the writing that he does later down the line. Um, but I thought it was kind of cool to see that this television is in conversation with his art, which is also in conversation with his writing. And he's an illustrator. So I feel like there is no media that he didn't get inspired from, to be honest with you, Stephanie. True. It seems like he's pulling inspiration from lots of different places um, in his life. So next up, again, he's publishing, he's writing all different kinds of things. But um, in 1970, Frog and Toad Are Friends comes along. And um, this is kind of the first uh, of only four books. There are actually only four Frog and Toad books that he wound up writing. Um, in 1971, he publishes Frog and Toad Together. Um, and then 1976, Frog and Toad All Year. Um, he insists that that is going to be the last Frog and Toad book that he writes. Um, and then he publishes Days with Frog and Toad. Uh, and that is actually the last one in the series. But I think most people know of Frog and Toad. Even if you haven't read the Frog and Toad books, you know, they're in every bookstore. It's definitely, I think, uh, when you see the art, when you see the cover, you're like, oh, yeah, that book. I, I totally read that book, or I totally have seen that before. Um, but Frog and Toad kind of become the iconic hallmarks of his career, um, but also his writing style um, and his art style. I agree with what you said, Stephanie. I don't have a memory of ever actually reading Frog and Toad, but it's one of those things where you could show me one still from any portion of the book and be like, that's Frog and Toad. I know it. True. Um, they are very sweet books. I would recommend it. I actually think you would like them. I think you'd wind up liking them more than I do, um, just in the way that he like reflects on relationships in them um, as well. But um, Frog and Toad, of course, kind of wind up... Um, being a, a larger metaphor, I think, in a way. Um, and again, his daughter reflects on this too. Uh, Adrian said in an interview that she did, quote, I think Frog and Toad really was the beginning of him coming out. Frog and Toad are of the same sex and they love each other. It was quite ahead of its time in that respect, end quote. So, um, it took until, um, Arnold Lobel was, I think, in his 40s to come out, um, as a gay man. Um, and Frog and Toad has this sort of like extended metaphor of a life for it. It isn't um, blatantly about it's it's very much like a friendship love, I will say. And I think you can read it that way. And I think that's a valid interpretation of reading it. Um, Lobel never really discusses this publicly of like, oh, this was the metaphor for myself. But I think um, he reflects as he's doing his writing on the fact that um, children and adults really aren't that different in the way that they experience emotions. Obviously, the way that we uh, maybe express those emotions is very different, but the way that we experience them, I think, largely stays the same. Uh, I think there's a very large part of us as adults that is really just 
you know, our childhood selves trying to figure out how to get out. Um, but I think ultimately, we, we're we just trying to be loved. We're just trying to be understood. Um, and the way that we convey those, I think, changes, obviously, as we grow up. And so for Frog and Toad in navigating their friendship and their relationships and things like that, um, you can read it, I think, in, in any way. It's it's a great book for kids to read about friendship. It's a great book for adults to read, um, to also learn about friendship. And I think, you know, whether you're reading it as a queer text um, or as not a queer text, it still has beautiful messages, um, depending on where you're finding meaning from them. I agree with that, Stephanie. I like that it can be read both ways and still have meaning. And maybe it should be read both ways, Uh, I don't think we have to choose just one. And knowing that he was coming out during the process of writing these books, it sort of makes a little bit of sense to me because I remember reading them and feeling like the characters were so restrained in the way that they would react to things uh, that I wonder if that wasn't him internalizing the restraint that he had um, with his struggle with his sexuality. And I'm completely editorializing here, but uh, that was my impression, at least as a young child. Sure. I think um, in reading Frog and Toad, part of it might be restraint, although there is one episode in one of the books in which Frog and Toad eat cookies and they can't stop, and that's a problem. (laughs) Um, So I think there, (laughs) but I think uh, one of the things that I find most striking about the, the relationship that they have, again, platonic or otherwise, um, is just the the deep amount of care that's inside of it. And I, I think if anything, um, Frog and Toad is a lovely reminder that it's okay to experience love in lots of different ways. It's okay to experience love. You should love your friends um, and you shouldn't be afraid to show it. Uh, and I think if we had a lot more freedom with the way that we as communities decided to express that, um, we would have a lot more love in the world. So I don't know that it it needs to be reserved, as you've said. We don't need to choose. You can love your friends, you can love your partners, and you can love everybody else, too. Uh, and I think Frog and Toad and does Frog that. and Toad, yeah, they can love each other as well. So uh, as I mentioned, 1974... Um, Arnold Lobel comes out to his family as gay. And although he will eventually, um, he and his wife eventually get divorced, it seemed like there's a lot of support from his children. Again, his daughter is still, you know, speaking and advocating for his legacy today. Um, so of course, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a, in a bit, but, um, he'll go on to write and illustrate, uh, almost a hundred titles over the course of his 26 year career. And he receives lots of honors and awards for his work. He is in a very small group of people who have received the honors of a Newbery and Caldecott medals as both an author and illustrator. So there aren't very many books, you know, usually you'll receive it as the illustrator on a book or the author of a book. um, But there's only a very small group that have received it for both the author and illustrator roles in, in children's literature. It's not surprising that he would be awarded for both of those realms because of how distinct both the writing and the illustrations were. So I think he deserves to be in that upper echelon. 
I agree. And um, so the Eric Carl Museum, this I promise is related. We're not switching gears to Eric Carl. Um, but the Eric Carl Children's Book Museum had uh, has a feature on their website about Arnold Lobel and his work, specifically Frog and Toad, but lots of his other illustrations come up there too. And they are beautiful. Um, but one of the things that I also associate with Frog and Toad is the font that it's written in. And I was just sort of under the impression, because there's a font that kind of looks like it, that I actually wind up gravitating towards a lot in my own, like posters that I make for my classroom and things like that. And as I was looking through this Eric Carle website, you can still see um, the hand-drawn text. You can see the little like lines that he's given himself in which to draw the actual font. So I don't actually know if this is true, but it also very much looks like this handwritten font was created by him as well. Um, so it's not just a, you know, a computer that sticks it over, but he is also drawing out some of those, you know, kind of highlight. It's like this beautiful, like, now it looks vintage and, and retro, but obviously he's doing this in the 70s, so it was of the time. Um, but he creates this really sort of fun, whimsical, blocky font um, to represent Frog and Toad. And, and I really like the font choice as well, but it looks like he drew it himself. You can still see the pencil lines in a lot of these original illustrations. So I would recommend going back in to look at them because, again, just sort of showing this outpouring of love that he has, not only for his, his art and his work, but his character as well. And isn't this a unique aspect of children's literature that the font and the illustrations are integral in telling the story? And, you know, if it was translated or, or put into another book and you lost the font, you would lose a portion of what makes Frog and Toad Frog and Toad. Uh, and I think that's really a unique quality that uh, we reserve for children's literature. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that would be kind of a fun thing to play with, like fonts that have become as integral to the to the books as they are uh, to the actual design, too. And like the ones that, again, pop in my head right away, I think of like Harry Potter and the, you know, the lightning. I think of Twilight, actually, with the kind of like curls and stuff like that. Um, Junie B. Jones has kind of this fun, like handwritten situation going on. Um, so yeah, listeners, chime in. Is there a book or books that stick out to you um, for their fonts as much as their images uh, that, that we would love to hear about those? So send us send us your thoughts. Um, so he also, he wins the Caldecott honor for Frog and Toad, both those first original books, 1971, 1972. Um, and then he also wins a Caldecott honor, but it's for his illustration work on a book called Hildilid's Night, um, which sounds super witchy and cute and fun. Uh, and the illustrations for that are also <laughs> lovely. Uh, he also wins the Newberry Award, uh, in 1973 for Frog and Toad Together. And he gets recognized by the National Education Association, the American Library Association, the Boys Club, the Society of Children's Book Writers, and the Laura Ingalls Wilder Foundation for his work in the realm of children's literature, which I thought was amazing. I don't know if there's an award or accolade that he didn't receive, Stephanie. Some of those don't even seem literary related to me. Like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know exactly what like the Boys Club Award is, but like, good right. for him. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, he writes many more books, but some of the other ones that he's known for include Mouse Soup in 1977 um, and the I Can Read book series, which he contributed different illustrations to. Um, one called Grasshopper on the Road, for example, that sort of thing. Although he did do a lot of this writing and he did a lot of the illustrations, he was really known more as an illustrator, I think, during his time. We now associate him almost exclusively, I think, with Frog and Toad, but um, he really struggled to write. So one of the quotes he did an interview in 1979, he reflects, quote, writing is very painful to me. I have to force myself not to think in visual terms because I know if I start to think of pictures, I'll cop out on the text, end quote. You know, so although he does do all of the writing and and we enjoy his style, his writing style in Frog and Toad, uh, he definitely had to work at it. It wasn't necessarily easy for him. Though it's surprising to me that thinking about those things didn't help the other. It sounds like he's almost having to divorce the imagery portion of his creativity from his literary output. And I think that's interesting because we view the books as having those two things integrally linked. Right. Um, But as we know, and as I have sort of hinted at, it's not always an author and an illustrator that are the same person in writing a children's book. It's often two separate people, one who's really good at art and one who can write uh, and putting them together creates the story. So I think it's really unique and special that Arnold Lobel could do both. Right. So in the early 1980s, he starts to make some changes. Um, He moves down to Greenwich Village. Um, He and his wife have separated at this point. And he starts to work on a book that eventually gets published as Fables. Um, He believes that Aesop's fables are too violent for children, so he creates his own. Um, I haven't actually read this book, but I found some of the summaries of some of these cute fables, and I thought I would read them because I thought they were very funny. So one of the early ones in the book, Fables, is called The Lobster and the Crab. And here's the plot. An adventurous lobster takes a timid crab on a boat ride through an ocean storm and both end up enjoying themselves. (laughs) Isn't that nice? It doesn't even sound like a fable, to be honest with you. I'm sure there's something in there about like overcoming the challenges and it's worth it in the end or, you know, whatever. Um, Trust your friends. I don't know. He also writes one called The Crocodile in the Bedroom. And this one is about a crocodile who enjoys the orderly flowered wallpaper in his bedroom over his wife's messy garden. But then he gets sick because he never leaves the room. And I thought this was an interesting interpretation of like the yellow wallpaper or something like that. Oh, um, it's not, no. but the, the moral within this one is without a doubt, there is such a thing as too much order. So, you know, I think okay. the embracing the possibilities of change, embracing things that are a little bit wild and a little bit crazy, but I just really like the idea that it was this wallpaper that sort of did it in for the crocodile. <laughs> How incredible. Uh, Stephanie, I want to take a quick tangent for a second. It's about fables and these fanciful fables that sort of riff on Aesop's fables. And you'll have to tell me if this was Lobel's creation as well. But as young children, you and I had to take standardized tests known as the ISAT. Yeah. And I remember one of the stories on the ISAT was called Pineapples Don't Have Sleeves. And it was a retelling of the tortoise and the hare, except it was the tortoise and the pineapple. And the pineapple kept talking about how he was going to beat the tortoise at the race. 
And in the end, the pineapple doesn't move. And the moral of the story is pineapples don't have sleeves. And to date, it is the story that has received the most write-ins to any standardized test for having any portion of literature. (laughs) And I think that it's confusing me, much like the crab and the lobster in their boat ride, where they just have a nice time. (laughs) Um. I'm really glad. I So there is very little that I remember, I think, about my elementary school days in terms of like standardized testing. I don't know that I could tell you anything about them. So I'm impressed and saddened that you remember that story so well. Um, I, I, I do not know if it is Arnold Lobel's story, um, but it sounds like it had a big impact on you whether you wanted it to or not. Sometimes things are as they seem. Pineapples don't have sleeves, Stephanie. Right. But like, can't you can't you learn something and grow from the voyage per the lobster and the crab? I am always up for a boat ride, so I'm much more interested in that story than the sleeveless pineapple. Also, what does it mean that it doesn't have sleeves? That doesn't make sense to me. Like of course it doesn't like it even had have something arms. up its sleeve. Oh. Right? He's like, oh, it must have something up its sleeve. There's going to be a surprise. I'm betting on the pineapple. But and pineapples then, also don't have any legs. So not only does yeah, it not nope. have sleeves, but it doesn't even have legs to like run a race. What a dumb story that was. A hundred percent. Please go search it now. It is worth a read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. Well, maybe if I go back and reread the story, I'll be like triggered. I'll have some sort of like repressed memory come back and remember like the exact moment during me taking the test where I was like, this isn't right. <laughs> yes, because all children in the state of Illinois had to read this story at a certain grade. And so, I don't know, I think it's a very millennial thing to understand the the bewilderment that you'd have to go through to understand this story. Good. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in that one and come back to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> listeners, if you did have to read the pineapple story, please let us know. I, it sounds like we have, uh, we have a support group uh, that we'll be starting for that. So, <laughs> Um, So it's now kind of the mid-1980s, and it seems like Arthur Lobel is starting to trust his instincts as a writer. He never kind of gets beyond that, because again, it's something that he struggles with. He feels much more secure in the realm of illustration. And so he never attempts to write like adult novels or anything like that, longer chapter books or anything for children. He really sort of sticks with the the marriage of the illustration um, and these shorter texts. Unfortunately, though, uh, knowing the time that we're kind of in, Arthur Lobel is diagnosed with AIDS. Um, he dies of cardiac arrest due to complications of the disease on December 4th, 1987 um, at Doctors Hospital in New York. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting, there wasn't a ton of information while doing this research about Arnold Lobel like to begin with, but almost none of the original articles that I could find that were published during his lifetime mentioned that he was either gay or had AIDS, and that was what the cardiac arrest was. Um, most of it just sort of like referenced he died of a heart attack or something like that. 
very much covered up. Um, he did have um, a partner for the last several years of his life, and um, that person took care of him and that sort of thing. But I thought that it was sort of interesting that we have this huge sense of erasure. Of course, part of it was probably because Arnold Lobel wasn't particularly out in that sense during his lifetime, of course. Um, but we also have to acknowledge, especially during Pride Month, the enormous amounts of homophobia that exist in society that likely prevented him from doing that. And so although we know now that it was a much more complicated story, if you go back and look at the actual articles that were published during the time, it doesn't acknowledge any of the complicated history or legacy um, that he leaves behind as a, a gay author creating work during the 1980s. Um, unfortunately, we, I don't know where he is buried. The burial details are not released or I couldn't find them. Um, so I'm guessing that he probably had ashes. He was probably cremated and, and family kept the ashes or something like that. It's usually what that means. The other thing to realize is it's also during a portion of the AIDS epidemic where people had a lot of misunderstanding of how the disease was spread. So, a possession of of a body of someone that died with AIDS is is also something that that was really fraught. So it, it could be that um, it is what you said, Stephanie, or uh, it, it could be something where they had to fabricate a story so that he could be buried somewhere. That's true. And if you are interested in knowing more about that, uh, John and I have plugged This Is Love on the podcast before, but there's a beautiful This Is Love episode about it. Um, I think even just from like a couple months ago, unfortunately, because we're talking about this off the cuff, I do not know what the episode is. I think it, it's something about an oak tree um, in the title, but definitely worth a listen. If you Google some of those keywords, I know you'll be able to find it. And so before we move on to his legacy, I just wanted to read a short excerpt, um, from a eulogy that was given and had a little bit more of an exploration of who he was as a person. Um, but the person who's eulogizing him, uh, this is a quote from the eulogy specifically quote, and he asked me to say this quote, tell them, he said, that if they wish to do something nice for me, ask them to look at the books, because that's where they'll find me. End quote. And I thought that there was something really powerful about not only the beauty within that quote, um, but also the kindness taken, knowing that death is harder on the people left behind than it is on the person who's actually gone. And so I thought there was something really striking and powerful about that quote and acknowledging that I'm not really leaving um, in, in every sense of the word, but go back and look at my books and, and that's where you're going to find uh, elements of me as a person and hopefully find that comforting for others. So I thought that even going into death, Arnold Lobel was taking care of the people that he loved. I think that's really beautiful, Stephanie. And I honestly think that Get Lit is an outshoot of that line of thinking in that we are absolutely attracted to the novels, to the literature that these authors write, and we can't help but want to see more of that person. And so I think, like you said, uh, there's a subset of people that we are profiling, and it's the ones who've left themselves in their works. And I think that's really beautiful that he was able to articulate that for the loved ones left behind. But I think it's also 
that we get to have the experience of meeting him, at least not in person, but through his work. Very true. So uh, it's never too late to go back and and read a children's book, I think, especially for those authors that created something uh, that has resonated with you. Um, I will go back and find Miss Rumphius immediately upon concluding this episode, for example. Um, so speaking of the legacy, and you know, these are offshoots of the work, but I think other ways of, of celebrating uh, Arnold Lobel's creations. Um, there's a musical called A Year with Frog and Toad that was workshopped in 2000. It was actually commissioned by his daughter, and it premieres in 2002. It winds up on Broadway. It starts off Broadway and then goes on Broadway in 2000 and has been touring nationally all over the United States. Um, and it gets nominated for three Tony Awards when it comes out, which I think is really cool. Um, the There was a play that existed before this called Frog and Toad Forever. Um, and so either of those you can wind up seeing or getting rights to. If you go onto the Musical Theater International website, you can find actually samples of the song. So if you wanted to go listen to the soundtrack of A Year with Frog and Toad, you could do that. Um, it's kind of jazzy. It's got some fun. It definitely sounds like Broadway musical theater, but uh, it's it's jazzy. It's kind of fun. Definitely designed as a theater for young audiences piece, but I think a really joyful celebration of the book. I didn't know that I wanted that, Stephanie, and I am now really happy it exists, so I have some homework. Yes, you go listen to it. Um, in the 1980s, uh, Churchill Films produced 18 and 30-minute claymation adaptations of Frog and Toad, which I would love to see. I love claymation. I think that's really fascinating. Um, and they were also narrated, at least in part, by Lobel himself. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Frog and Toad Are Friends gets released uh, on May 23rd, 1985, and then Frog and Toad Together on September 3rd of 1987. Um, so right kind of before he dies, I think it, hopefully he was able to see, you know, the celebrations of his work in a new form. Um, but maybe most exciting, uh, because it is so recent, there's an animated series based on the book that premiered on April 28th, 2023. So just about two months ago, um, on what? Apple TV plus, we could go see a new interpretation of Frog and Toad, the series. I don't, I have not seen it. I don't know if it's any good, but, uh, I think it's exciting nonetheless that we're still getting new interpretations of Frog and Toad, uh, in 2023, almost 50 years after, uh, they come out. I think they have staying power, Stephanie. I think we'll see a number of other adaptations in our lifetime. I absolutely agree. I think this book uh, and these two characters in particular have spoken to generations of people. And so I think um, having a legacy that spans over 50 years uh, is indicative of that. And uh, we are excited to celebrate the legacies of all of the authors this month, many of whom were not necessarily able uh, to be acknowledged during their lifetime, either as their true selves, um, as queer people, um, but also maybe just didn't get the, the recognition they deserve as authors. So we're really excited about the next several weeks of authors uh, that we get to share with you. But until we see and hear from you next time, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. There's one thing I know that's true. If you want to be hip, get lit. If you want to be hip, get lit. If you want to be hip, listen to Get Lit. 
again.